The communion service keeps us remembering His death on the cross. He didn't die for His sins. For he had none. He died for us. God hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. But we do want to deal with this question. What does the Bible really teach about communion? And there's a lot of ideas out there and a lot of ways in which things are being done. And I suggest to you that what we ought to be interested in is what does God's Word have to say on the subject of communion? I think that's very important. Now here at our church, once a month, we have communion. Oh, there we go. What does the Bible say about communion? There we go. We found it. We are in business. Good stuff. Well, as I say, once a month, we uh, try to celebrate the table of the Lord. We usually do that on the first Sunday of each month. And we'll hold it in the evenings for two Sundays and then in the morning for one Sunday. And then we do that because some people are not able to get out to evening services. And that way everyone gets an opportunity. Okay, put that next slide up, please. Um, the idea, oh, we're going to do it one at a time. Just throw it, throw it up there, would you please? There we go. You see, it goes by some different names. And I thought we would start with that. All this is introduction. Um, this is called communion. If you look at, you get your Bible's open in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. If you just go back one chapter to chapter 10, verse 16 it says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So here you can definitely see it goes by the name communion. That's the name that we typically use. Sometimes it goes by the name the Lord's Supper. If you look at chapter 12, no, can't see right, chapter 11, verse 20. 11 and verse 20. When ye come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And I'll explain what he means by that. But you see the name there, the Lord's Supper. And also, uh, back in Acts, and we won't turn there for the sake of time, but it's called the breaking of bread. So the Bible goes by, uh, uses these three names. Say, someone says, well, what about the Eucharist? I was raised in a church where it was called the Eucharist. The word Eucharist is a, a Greek word. The Greek word is ephristo, and it means thanks, giving of thanks or thanksgiving. And it's used uh, in the Gospels when Jesus took the, uh, the bread and gave thanks. That's where they get the word from. But the word ephristo, uh, uh, or as it's said, Eucharist today, is used numerous times in the New Testament about giving a thanks. And this person was thankful and, and they were thankful. And it's all the same word. And so this is where that word comes from. And it simply means a giving of thanks or being thankful. Eucharist or Ephristo. And so the word is not really connected per se with communion. Uh, it's, in other words, it's not, another, it's not a substitute name really. That's why we don't call it the Eucharist. Because it's not a proper substitute name. Okay, what about the Mass? 
uh, say, well, I was raised in a church where it was called the Mass. Well, this may shock you, but nowhere is that word ever used in the Bible. It's used nowhere in the Bible whatsoever, the word Mass. Uh, it, it has to do with uh, a Latin word, the idea of being to send. And we won't take the time to get into that, but it's not used in the Bible. We want to see what the Bible teaches about communion. And so we're left with uh, one of three uh, choices, and we usually call it communion. We sometimes call it the Lord's Supper. I'm not sure if we've ever called it breaking of bread, but yet that's still a biblical term that you could use for that. All right, uh, I think we got another slide there, do we? Or is that it? Well, okay, anyhow, it's done differently. There we go. Um, it's practiced differently in different churches. Now, this first one up here is called the intinction method. How many have ever heard of intinction? Raise your hand. I'd like to see. No one, huh? Well, you're not alone. Intinction. Now, maybe you're not, you're not familiar with the word, but maybe you're familiar with the practice that uh, some uh, Catholic churches and some Protestant churches, uh, some Lutheran churches, uh, they take the bread and they dip it in the juice. That's called the intinction method. How many have learned something so far by coming to church today? Raise your hand. Look at that. We've all learned something here, haven't we? Okay, that's the intinction method. Now, next is the, uh, the Catholic method. And usually that's where the bread uh, is given to people. Uh, and then the priest drinks the wine himself. The bread, though, is usually a little wafer, isn't it? And it's put on the tongue and there's all kinds of little rigmarole, little sort of things. You, you know, you can't chew it and has to melt and that sort of thing. But that's the Catholic method. There's the Greek Orthodox. Do we have that? Yeah, there we go. The Greek Orthodox, typically the, um, I'll just use this just because it's handy for an example, okay? But the, uh, the Greek Orthodox priest will hold the wine. They're talking about alcoholic wine and with a spoon He'll dip in and he'll give it to the parishioners. That's the, typically the Greek Orthodox. Although some Greek Orthodox use the intinction method as well. As I say, it's a, it's a bit of a mixed bag out there. There's the Anglican method. The Anglican method, that's what I grew up in. Some of you also grew up in Anglican method. And that's where the, uh, the priest, he'll have the, the chalice. Not called a cup, they call it a chalice. And be filled with the wine. And then... He, uh, the parishioners will line up on their knees and they'll take a little sip and he'll wipe it off and give it to the next one. They'll take a sip and he'll wipe it off and give it to the next one. He'll take a sip and so on. So that's sort of the Anglican method. And then there are those who reject communion altogether. They have nothing to do with communion at all in their church services. Um, two of those types of churches are Salvation Army. Salvation Army, they do not have communion whatsoever. Now, I've researched this, and the reason, I believe, is because the early converts in the Salvation Army back in the east section of London, England, were alcoholics. And so William Booth was afraid that the smell of the grape juice or something might lure them back into alcoholism, and so he said, no communion whatsoever. Well, you may have your opinion on that. I have mine. I don't think it's a good, a good choice, a good decision, because he's torn out something that God has told us to do. But anyhow, that's beside the point. 
Uh, also, the Quakers, if you've ever heard of the Quakers, the Quakers, there's, there's not a whole lot of them out there, but there's a religious group called the Quakers, and they also have nothing to do with communion. And then, of course, you get some really weird ones today. There's the off-the-wall bizarre ones. And instead of using grape juice, they'll use Coca-Cola. And instead of using uh, un unleavened bread, they'll use um, uh, Ritz crackers, you know, or something like that. So you, you really get a, a kind of a, a weird craziness that's happening out there. Okay, I think we're done with those. The principal passages that um, we have the communion uh, is in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke chapter 22, and 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And that's where I want you to keep your Bible open here. Because some people, they don't seem to think that the Lord really cares one way or the other whether we have communion, and if we do have communion, how we go about it. And they don't seem to think that God really cares. And I beg to differ. I believe that God does care. You see, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Paul wrote, For I have received of the Lord that which I also I delivered unto you. And he goes on, that the Lord Jesus the same night, and so on. Paul got this directly from Jesus Christ and gave it to the people. And so today, we're going to look at uh, two or three important things that the Bible teaches about communion. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Please bow your head with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us now to understand what your book, the Bible, teaches on this important subject about communion. Uh, Father, I pray that you would use it to increase our faith in what you've written, increase our love for you, increase our desire to live for you. Please bless us together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, well, well. Um, by the time 1 Corinthians was written, approximately 20 years had gone by from when Jesus died and rose again to when this book was written to the church at Corinth. There used to be no church at Corinth. No one knew the gospel until Paul got there and started preaching about the Messiah Jesus who could take away our sins and forgive us our sins. And so people started to hear and believe and they were saved and a church was started at, uh, Corinthian, at Corinth. But these people, they, I guess they tried to blend things of the world with their church because the church was really messed up in many ways. That's why we have the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. They, you know, praise the Lord on the one hand, praise the Lord that the church messed up so badly because if they didn't, we might not have these great books that give us such wonderful teaching on what's supposed to happen in a church and how Christians are supposed to treat each other. First and Second Corinthians teach us all that. On the other hand, it's too bad the church messed up. Eh? Personally, I take it as a real heartache when I hear of a church that once preached the gospel, once sent out missionaries, once believed you know, the word of God for them to you know, end up turning very worldly or closing altogether. And uh, it's happening, folks. Around the world, churches are, are suffering. We have a lot of churches around the world that don't have pastors. There's pastors that are getting old and they're uh, having to retire. Some of them are dying. And there's not enough young men responding to the call of God to get into the ministry. Boy, I tell you, there's a lot of job openings in the ministry. 
there is. But anyhow, I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about communion. And so I'm saying that by this point in church history, the churches were all established and the Lord uh, took the trouble to reveal again to the Apostle Paul this thing about communion. And God wants His people to partake in communion or the Lord's Supper or the breaking of bread. Why does God want us to do it? Why did God give it to us and say, here, do this? Why did He do it? Well, please, number one. This is not a number one point. This is an important point before number one point. Communion doesn't get us to heaven. You can take communion until you drop dead and still die and go to hell. Communion was never designed to get us to heaven. Never. If communion could, could get us to heaven, then Jesus didn't have to die on the cross, did He? He didn't have to be buried and He didn't have to rise from the dead on the third day. He didn't have to go through any of that if communion is all it takes. Or let's add baptism as well. Behind curtain number one, we have, we have someone being baptized. All right, we'll get them baptized. Now we'll give them communion. Now they can go to heaven. It doesn't work that way, folks. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the what? Blood of Jesus. Right. It's only through Jesus. You see, it's not what you know that's going to get you to heaven. It's who you know. And you either know Jesus as your personal Savior or you don't. You know about Him, but you really don't know Him personally. Well, here I want to give you two or three important truths as to why God gave us communion. Number one is it keeps us remembering His death. That is so important because we so often forget it. I guess it's human nature, right? We sort of turn away from things that are a little maybe grisly or unpleasant, let's say. We sort of turn away from them before you know we've forgotten. It often happens that uh, a friend of ours or someone we, we know close, maybe a loved one, will get sick and die and it, you know, it hurts. We feel sorrow. We attend the funeral. But I'll tell you what, you know, after a few years, it doesn't hurt so much, does it? And maybe a few more years, we don't think of them at all. And yet they lived a real life. Lived and breathed and talked and walked and they lived a real life and we've forgotten them completely. It's human nature to forget. I happen to think I have a very healthy forgetter. I don't know about how you, when someone tells you their name for the first time, do you just instantly remember it for the rest of your life? What usually happens after you, you introduce yourself to someone, they introduce themselves to you, you meet someone for the first time, you hear their name, within three seconds, you're thinking, what is their name? What is their name? Hmm? That happens, doesn't it? And uh, we all have a pretty good forgetter at times. But the Lord doesn't want us to forget this. This is something that is not good for us. If we forget, it's not good. There are some things it's good if you forget them. But this is not one of those. This is a thing that is good if you remember. And so communion or the Lord's table, uh, the Lord's supper, uh, the breaking of bread, we're talking the same thing here, but it keeps us remembering his death. Now, chapter 11, I'd like you to look at verse 26. It tells you right there. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's... What's that next word? Death. Till he come. And we all know 
Jesus died on the cross. It keeps us mindful of his death on the cross. Sometimes you'll, you'll see a, a cross that looks very clean. And I'm not, I'm not saying anything bad against it. We've got a, a cross on the front of this pulpit here. And it looks very clean and polished and nice. But the real cross wasn't like that. The real cross with two old hunks of wood that were pretty rough, roughly hewn out. And when they put Jesus there, first they beat him with a cat of nine tails and he lost a lot of blood and he had open gaping wounds. They had a crown of thorns plaited and jammed down on his brow. And of course, there was blood gushing from that as well. They took him and naked nailed him to the cross. That was Roman crucifixion. They didn't put a person, a guy in a three-piece suit up on a cross. The whole purpose of the cross was to make death the most horrible, miserable, undesirable possible way to die. A bullet through the head would have been merciful. The hangman's noose would have been merciful. But the cross, men had been known to last for days before they finally expired on the cross. So they nailed Jesus there. They erected him like a, some kind of a spectacle. Of course, he was between two other thieves, likewise, naked, beaten, and so on. And they mocked them. Horrible, horrible way to die. Was Jesus looking forward to it? No, absolutely not. You see, the human side, he was God in the flesh. And the flesh side was not looking forward to that. And that's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, just the night before, he had prayed with such earnestness that his, his sweat were as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. He was in great turmoil and agony looking forward to this. Finally, on the cross, he did his finest work. He died for your sin and mine. That's why he came to earth. He came to be our Savior. Oh, what do I need to be saved from? Oh, not much, just a place called eternal damnation and hell. Every one of us, all have sinned. You see, sin cannot get into heaven, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't be heaven. It, it would be hell before you know it. So, sin cannot get into heaven. It's as absolutely pure and perfect as God himself is pure and perfect. And that lets us out. We can't get there because we know we've had bad thoughts. We know we've made broken promises. We know that we've, we've caused harm. We've used verbal grenades one upon another. And we've left carnage in, in our wake. Yeah, no, we can't get to heaven because of the sin. Oh, but I've never murdered anyone. Well, maybe not with a gun, but maybe with words. Maybe in your heart you wish someone dead. I mean, listen, murder's not the only crime. It's not the only sin. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of other little sins that add up and pile up. We can't get to heaven. We couldn't get to heaven if our lives depended on it. And by the way, our lives do depend on it. Only Jesus could make a way. You see, we better remember. The communion service keeps us remembering his death on the cross. He didn't die for his sins. For he had none. He died for us. God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's a wonderful, incredible plan of God that the creator would come and die for the creation. Why? Why would he do it? For God so loved the world 
That's your answer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish. That means to die and go to hell. But have everlasting life. It's a gift, folks. It's a gift. Salvation is a free gift that any man, woman, or young person can receive or reject. Communion keeps us remembering the fact that he was bruised for our iniquities. You see, the the Son of God came and became sin for us, so to speak. There's a song we love to sing. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. Remember that song? What a wonderful hymn. Hmm? The old rugged cross. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Listen, one day we'll see our wonderful Savior who died on that old rugged cross. We cannot afford to forget what he did for us. Otherwise, we're going to go on our merry way and we're going to get into trouble. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. He did it because of God's love. Romans 5.8 says, God commendeth, that means he showed, he commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, would you give your life for a wicked old tyrant? Probably not. Would you give your life for a close loved one? Quite probably. You know, if your mother or father, if your daughter or your son, they were in harm's way, about to be hit by a train or something, and the only way to stop them is to push them out of the way, and you take the brunt. You know, for a close loved one, a family member, you'd probably do it. For a, an important person, a famous figure in in uh, uh, earth's history, you might do it. But would you do it for a crook? Would you do it for a horrible person? You see, this is where God steps in. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Anyhow, God has nothing but love in his heart for us. And so verse 26, it says, we do show the Lord's death. That word show has the idea of proclaim We show it in a very open way. The communion service really does picture the death of Jesus. You say, how is that? Because we say, here is a piece of of unleavened flat bread. It represents his broken body. Here is a cup of grape juice. There's no alcohol in it, by the way. That represents his shed blood for us. His broken body, his shed blood. There's the death. Ye do show the Lord's death. That's a proclamation of the gospel. Well, you remember the, uh, uh, the Jews celebrate a, um, a thing called Passover, right? That's a Jewish celebration. I think we all know that. Well, that came about because the Jews were still in captivity in, e- in Egypt. And Pharaoh, you know, his bondage over them. And finally came the final night. And the angel of death was going to go through all of the land of Egypt. And so the Jews were told to take a lamb, a pure lamb, and to sacrifice it and take its blood and put the blood on the doorposts and the lintel of their home. And when, then they were to stay inside the home that night. And the angel of death, as it came through the land of Egypt, the words of God were, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that's where the expression Passover 
comes from. That's what it means when the angel of death passed over. And you say, well, those people in there, were they pure and righteous? No, they weren't. Uh, a little bit later, many of them were persnickety folks, you know, in the wilderness. But the point is, God was setting up a, a yearly celebration for them that would help them to remember where they came from. They were slaves in Egypt, and God brought them out with a strong hand. And the Passover became an emblem of that. Well, the Passover also points to Jesus. He is our Passover. And Jesus shed his blood so that when we are in Jesus, so to speak, the angel of death passes over us. We don't have to die and go to hell. Not for any merit of our own. Folks, we have nothing to boast in. But we've got a wonderful Savior to boast in. And so point number one is it keeps us remembering his death. Point number two is it keeps us humble. Oh, I tell you, we all need that. I think I need that more than anyone. Pride is a real dog. And pride goes incognito sometimes. You don't even realize you're proud. I've, I've often used the, the illustration of bad breath. No one I know of loves bad breath. Some people love onions and garlic and they're good for you. But, whoa. You know, after they come close and, how are you? How are you today? Good till now. <laughs> the person with bad breath doesn't know they have bad breath, do they? You know it. Hmm? And it's something like that with pride. You may not be aware that you've got a pride problem in some area. But others around you will know it. Hey, husbands and wives, here's a fun game. When you go home today, why don't you sit down and look at each other across the table and say, now let's be honest. Do you see any area of pride in my life? And then what you're going to want to do is hold on tight <laughs> to that chair. Because if your loved one is honest... I mean really honest. They will probably say, well, you know, you might have a teeny little bit, you know, in, in this area. And they're saying that because they don't want you to uh, jump off the roof or something or throw you off the roof. So pride is, is like that. It's, it goes incognito. And we're often the last ones to find out we've got a pride problem. And you can have a pride problem over something you do very well. You may be very good at it, very skilled. And subtly, you've got this feeling of superiority. When it comes to our relationship with God, sometimes it fools us. You know, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's what the Bible teaches in Jeremiah chapter 17. And so we come to our relationship with God and we have this idea, well, you know, I've been doing pretty good lately. Hey, I, I haven't had any bad thoughts. I haven't had said any bad words, you know, for a week. I've been reading my Bible every day. I've been praying. Hey, I went to church twice. I think I'm doing pretty good. Well, in the light of that, Father, I want to ask you for a few things. And on our best days, our very best days, all we are is sinners saved by grace. That's all we are, folks. And it ain't going to change until we get to heaven. We still have a miserable, crummy sin nature. 
And we've got to drag this thing with us wherever we go or it's like a monkey on our back. And you know some days it acts up. You get bad thoughts towards someone. Maybe even someone you love. Isn't that something? It's amazing how that with our loved ones, you know, parents and children, it should be the, you know, the, uh, the, the picture of heaven on earth. But it isn't always, is it? Sometimes the ones you hurt the most are the ones you love the most. I don't know why that is, but uh, that's what happens. And sometimes families are just hanging together by threads. Shouldn't be that way. Should be strong bonds, you know. Blessed be the, the tie that binds. But it isn't always like that. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, we got nothing to boast in when we come to God. This second point is so important. We realize that Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Do you owe anyone anything? Do you have a credit card and you owe money? Do you have a line of credit and you owe money? You have a bank loan, a student loan. Do you have a loan with Uncle, Uncle Zeke or Aunt Matilda? You owe someone money. Do you owe anything to anyone? Well, I'll tell you, your first creditor is Jesus Christ. You owe it all to Jesus. You owe your life to Him. Your heart is beating right now. You owe that to Him. You have what you have. You owe that to Him. You are clothed and in your right mind, you owe that to Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you're part of God's family, and you're saved, you owe that to God, to Jesus Christ. I tell you, the communion service humbles us. It makes us realize once again that there is no merit of my own. His anger to suppress. We realize that any one of us, all of us, could be in hell today if it weren't for the unmerited love and kindness of a wonderful creator named Jesus. He didn't have to go to the cross. He didn't have to die for you and me. And He didn't have to save our souls when we asked Him to either. God does not want you and I to take any of this for granted. And this is what's happening in the church at Corinth. They were taking it for granted. They were forgetting and they were taking it for granted. Now look at chapter 11. And verse number 17. We read this and... Um, <laughs> no. Verse 17. Now, this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. So right here in this verse here, Paul is telling them, when you folks get together for church... And the context is communion as well. You're not, you're not leaving for the better. You're leaving worse off than when you came. Can you imagine a church service where you came and you left wounded? How, how often would you go to a church like that? Where every time you leave, you leave with a broken heart and a broken spirit and maybe an upset stomach hmm? and headaches. You wouldn't want to go to a church like that where you kept leaving like that. Now, by the way, I'm not saying this. I'm not saying if the Holy Spirit is touching your heart, saying there's a sin or a bad habit you need to deal with. And, oh, oh, my little heart is touched. Oh, I'm never going back to that church again. I'm not talking about that because that's something good. If the Holy Spirit is touching your heart and talking to you, that's good. That means you can at least hear the still small voice. 
I mean, you want to hear from God, don't you? So that's something good. But what I'm saying is some kind of church service where you're browbeaten and where you're harassed and where you're screamed at and where you, you end up leaving, you know, with a headache, a pounding head or something. Chances are you wouldn't want to go back to a, a church service like that. But I'm not saying that that's the kind of thing they were doing at Corinth. They were doing other things, quieter, but more dangerous. And they were leaving for the worse. And so he says, verse 17, you're not better, you're worse. Verse 18, for first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. Having cliques and divisions in a church is not good. Uh, verse 19, for there must also be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may, be, may manifest among you. And so the idea here is a heresy is something that divides people. They divide people. You want to be careful of anything that's going to divide, divide, divide. So we learn here in, the, in these verses here, it, it goes on here to uh, even to verse 21, that there was problems in this church. They were, they were not being humble. They were coming together and they were ending worse. Listen, the Lord's body is the local church. I want you to see this verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Imagine that. Guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. What does that mean? It means as if it was you who nailed him to the cross. As if it was you that held a spike in one hand and a hammer in the other and drove it through his hands and drove it through his feet. It was you maybe who tied some ropes around his, his arms to help hold him there. It was you who helped lift that cross up and drop it in a hole in the ground with a thud and tamp some dirt and rocks in there to keep it upright. It was you who stood back and mocked him. It was you who took a spear and drove it through his side. <gasps> Say, whoa, those are serious accusations. That's exactly what you're looking at. Whosoever, verse 27 Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. That's the key word, is unworthily. When something is worthy, you hang on to it. When it's unworthy, you tend to get rid of it. Maybe you've had a, a, a favorite piece of clothing for years and years and years and too many years, but now you see it's got holes in it, you've sewn it, and so stitches have broken, maybe bugs have gotten at it, maybe it's starting to smell or something, and it's no longer worthy. No one wants it, and so you have to get rid of it. People are like that. People are like that. And I'm not trying to be judgmental, because God only is the judge. But I'm saying this, in the eyes of God, come judgment day, in the eyes of God, people are worthy or they're unworthy. If they're worthy, they're, there's some worth there. There's some worth in them. What is that worth? That worth is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. When God sees Jesus in us, he sees the worth. If Jesus is not in us, we can be as religious as we want. But if Jesus is not in us, there's no worth. We are unworthy. This verse is talking about a man or woman who's not saved, not born again. They've never received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. They've just gone to church. They're just involved with a communion service. And whoever partakes and is not born again, verse 27, 
Wherefore, whosoever shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. That means you have to look in your heart. You, you have to ask intelligent questions. Is Jesus Christ in my heart? Yes or no? Well, how will I know if Jesus is in my heart? Well, typically, there are ways to know. There's actually many ways. If you're married, how do you know you're married? Well, I know I'm married because on this such and such a date, I stood there at the altar and was pronounced husband and wife. And we had a reception. We had a wedding cake. And I've got a photo album, so I've got that. What else? What other proof you're married? Well, I got a marriage certificate. What other proof have you got you're married? Well, I got wedding rings on. And you, you get the idea. There's evidences of marriage. Well, where are the evidences that Jesus Christ is in your heart? But I've gone to church. So does the devil. But I've read the Bible. The devil reads the Bible too. So, come on, huh? Uh, Hitler and Mussolini read the Bible. Where's the evidences? Well, there are real evidences. There's going to be a time and place in your life where you've actually repented of your sin and received Christ as Savior. You've asked Him to forgive your sins and come into your heart and to be your Savior. And then there's going to be some evidences of Christ in there. Listen, if I came and lived in your home, there'd be evidences. You'd open the refrigerator and say, who's been eating all of the, you know, the food here? You, you'd go and you'd find some, some laundry on the floor. Who's been leaving their laundry on the floor? Evidences that I'm living in your home. Well, what are the evidences that Jesus is living in your heart? Let a man examine himself. That's what it says right there in verse number uh, 28. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, there we go back to the man or woman who does not have Jesus Christ in them. Whosoever eateth and drinketh unworthily, watch this, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. You know what damnation is. That's what happens when people end up in hell. They're in a damned position. They eat damnation to themselves, not discerning the Lord's body. Wow. So, very important. Very important. We have to hustle along here. I'm sorry, we've got to move along. But in the Lord's body, which is the local church, and I don't have the time to explain that and show you in Scripture, the local church is the Lord's body. The church is a local church. Homes are local. This world isn't made up of one big family. No, no, it's made up of billions of families. And the church is not the one big universal. No, 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 no. It's millions of individual churches because Jesus Christ is present in each one. The church is local and it needs to have unity. And when we gather around the table, park our feet under the Lord's table and we celebrate the communion. And by the way, the word communion means a, a fellowship, a partaker in something. And our, what it is we partake in is we partake in Jesus Christ. So we have fellowship in Christ. But you see, it's all equal. A rich man, a poor man can park their feet together and be absolutely equal in the eyes of God. Male and female, absolutely equal in the eyes of God. Very important we recognize this, the equality. So, the Lord's Supper, it, 
it keeps us humble. The Lord's Supper, it keeps us remembering. But quickly, and I have to move along, it keeps us looking forward. These are three great reasons why we have the table of the Lord. Keeps us remembering His death, that He died for us. It keeps us humble. We have no merit of our own. It's because of Jesus that we get to go to heaven. But number three, it keeps us looking forward to his coming. And I want you to see that again in verse 26. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death. Now say out loud those last three words with me, please, everyone. Till he come. Jesus is coming back. He is coming back. This is like prophecy is what it is. The Lord's Supper is prophetic that Jesus is coming back. You know, something that I've noticed in the years of my marriage is that whenever I've had to go away for maybe a few days or something, go to a Bible conference, go to a church and preach, preach at another church or something, and I have to leave my wife behind and I go away, you know, my happiest moment is coming back home. It's always been coming back home. I get this huge welcome from my wife. I am really looking forward to coming back home, you see? Now, Jesus is coming to get us. What kind of reception is he going to get? Oh, Jesus, no, not now, not yet. No, no, I want to do this. I want to, I don't want to go home to heaven quite yet. Blah, 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 blah. Jesus wouldn't want to come back to that. But when Jesus comes to get us, he's looking for us to say, Lord Jesus, you've come. You're here. I'm so excited. You know, I'll leave the world behind. Take me, take me. The Bible talks about the next event on the prophetic calendar. It's called the rapture. That means a catching away. And it's taught in two or three different places in Scripture. And it means that Jesus is going to come in the clouds and he's going to call the believers home. Not everyone is a believer, you know that. Not everyone has Jesus Christ in his or her heart. And just think of what's going to happen if he were to come on a Sunday. Churches that are filled with people Most of them gone, all of a sudden. A few of them saying, what just happened? They're looking around and there's hymn books and Bibles that are left strewn around. And there's a few people spotted throughout the auditorium. People who were great people, religious people, but they weren't saved. They'd never received Jesus Christ into their heart. So they've been left behind. Well, we're not here to talk about the prophetic calendar and the rapture and then the coming tribulation and all of that. We're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about the Lord's table. Three reasons I've given you as to why God has given to us and expects us to do it. And that's why churches who say no communion, they're not biblical. Because you may as well tear the books of Corinthians, Matthew, Mark, and Luke right out of your Bible. Because they all teach the Lord's Supper. You may as well tear out the book of Acts as well, because it teaches as it shows as well in there the Lord's Supper. God has given us a wonderful picture. It shows us his death. It keeps us humble.
And we need to be humble, folks. I think that most of our problems come from pride. Most of our fights come from pride. And it keeps us looking forward to His coming. Are you looking forward to His coming? I hope you are. It could be today. Maybe it won't be for another 10 years, 50 years, but it could be today. And we need to live in light of His coming. That's a good way to live, by the way. Takes away the fear. Takes away the burdens. He could come for me today. Would you bow your head and close your eyes for some prayer? Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.